לממשלה ומשרדים וההשקעות הכספיות Hunter by J. Noyce Shear, read by Wesley Critchfield. Some collect stamps. Some build ships and bottles. Shelby Sport was stalking blimps. Shelby Halcombe. What was it about blimps that he hated? He wasn't even sure that he hated them. It was just that hunting them seemed to satisfy some sort of primal urge, like sport or hobby. It was an activity to lose himself in, and escape from the pressures of day-to-day, -day, considerable as they were in a city the scale of Manhattan. Sure, some people built ships in bottles, some collected stamps, but Shelby was the most content, seated atop the roof of the 40-story clock tower in Tribeca, a six-pack by his side and a rifle in his lap. He used a 22 with the rationalization that tiny bullets didn't make much more than a pigeon-peck hole in the side of a blimp and he never aimed at the man's gondola that hung below the blimp's belly. He had nothing against the pilots or the crews. If anything, he envied their view. He might have had a case for shooting at the advertisements that blinked across the blimps, but that wouldn't have explained anything. It was really just sport. Something to shoot at that didn't shoot back. Something to do at night, outdoors, in the city, that didn't cost an arm and a leg. He would have felt bad if he'd actually ever brought one down. For starters, it would have meant the end of his hobby. People who lived out in the country had it made, he thought. They could shoot as much as they liked, and they wouldn't have to worry about hitting anyone. But in a city crammed with 8 million people, there was only one direction to shoot with any degree of safety, and that direction was up. When Shelby first moved to the city, he tried shooting rats in the park at night. But the rifle was too big to conceal, and handguns didn't have the same appeal. He thought about pigeons, but they weren't good for sport, and they tended to roost in places he didn't dare risk shooting at, like windowsills. Blimps, on the other hand, were perfect. He could aim at the bulbs that lit up the sides as they spelled out their various ads and greetings. It was difficult to hit them, and it was difficult to tell when he'd actually made a hit, as the words danced across the blimp, blinking from one row to the next. But it didn't matter. The hunt itself was what gratified. And so it was one hot Friday night in July that Shelby climbed out of the trap door onto the clock tower roof. Off on the Jersey side of the island, the sun was setting with atomic colors, while on the east side above him, the sky was blue. The stars were just visible, and a light breeze up on the tower made it almost chilly. Shelby was glad he'd worn his hunting jacket. He walked to the edge of the building and sat down between the large roof ornaments on the front of the big clock. He cracked the pop-top on the rolling rock and scanned the sky. 
There were two blimps out that night. One drifted off Battery Park, probably over the Statue of Liberty. The other was up around Midtown. Shelby was prepared to lie in wait, like any hunter of big game. Sooner or later, a blimp would float past. They almost always did, and when one did, he'd be ready. Shelby let his thoughts drift unfettered. Images came to mind. He saw his mother bending over an open oven, and he laughed to himself. It was a funny way to think of her, as she almost never cooked. Then he recalled Jack Axtinger, his antagonistic, rotund boss at the bakery. There was a lot of blimp in him. Blimp, he thought. To erase these relatively unpleasant images from his mind, he did what he often did. He put women he'd glimpsed in the streets into the roles of various women in religious films that he had seen. And he played his favorite scenes over and over in his mind, making little improvements and imagining what kind of shoes they would wear. Shelby dissolved from his own fantasies back to the skyline. The downtown blimp was slowly making its way uptown, and errant breeze carried the whirring drone of blimp motors to him. Shelby felt his adrenaline rise as he put down his beer and grabbed his rifle. He hugged the wooden buttstock to his cheek and inhaled the sweet scent of the lemon oil polish. He watched through the telescopic sight as the big gas bag cleared the Woolworth building and drifted toward him. He held his breath and squeezed off one shot. Off it flew. He ejected the shell, focused his being to the sight, and fired again. He fired half a dozen shots, lost in his task. The blimp had never come this close to the clock tower before. He could see the sign lamps clearly. He picked off one after another. As the blimp drew closer, closer still, he could almost hear the pop of the bulbs. The blimp motors were now clearly audible, growing louder as Shelby continued to shoot. Slowly the bulbs on the blimp began to grow in size as they filled the circle in Shelby's telescopic sight. It was only then that Shelby looked up with his naked eye, astonished to see how close the blimp had come. Shelby put his rifle down. Hell, he thought. It almost isn't fair to shoot them when it's this close. He felt suddenly exposed as the blimp came around to face him. The lights in the gondola seemed to glare at him, like big, unblinking, angry eyes. Now it was so close that he could make out the mooring line and the black ribbing of the nose cone batons. And yet, it was still coming. They had better pull up, or turn off, he said to himself. They're going to hit something. But on it came, and Shelby suddenly panicked. He picked up his rifle and gasped. It was coming right at him, and it seemed, somehow, angry. Shelby leapt to his feet and turned to beat a hasty retreat, only to discover that the second blimp had snuck up behind and was now hovering, huge, menace, its motors growling, filling the entire northern skyline with its huge mass. Shelby threw himself at the trap door and yanked it open. He leapt in, just as the first blimp roared overhead. He clambered down the rungs of the ladder, closed the trap door behind him, and tried to catch his breath. He listened for the blimps overhead. He listened for the blimps over the ticking of the big old antique clock. When his heart slowed down to normal, he realized he had left his rifle on the roof. He debated the wisdom of going back to retrieve it, and found himself laughing. It was absurd. Just some freak winds, no doubt. They weren't wild beasts. They were blimps. 
He went back up the ladder and opened the trap door, cautiously. He stuck his head out. When he saw both blimps lying in wait for him, he changed his mind and shut the door quickly. To hell with the rifle, he thought. They were angry. Shelby descended the ladder to the top of the circular stairwell that ran down the inside of the clock tower. Through the tall, dirty windows, he could see the blimps. They were circling like gigantic sharks. They were after him. Shelby took the elevator down to the ground floor and made for the Broadway exit. He left the building quickly and walked four blocks before he dared to look up. Sure enough, the two blimps were still circling the clock tower. Shelby laughed. <laughs> they might be big, and they might be mean. They sure were stupid, he thought. He turned and walked off down the block. Unaware that the two blimps had left the building and were now motoring slowly after him. Hey, Billy, why do you look so down? Aw, oh, Dad, I got a computer, a PlayStation, and a barn full of iguanas, and I'm still bored. <sighs> Gee, Billy, when I was your age, I would read lots of stories in pulp magazines. Oh, with stories of weird adventure and fantasy, horror, satire, and lots of action. Wow, that sounds great, Dad. Yeah, I sure wish there was something like that right now. <laughs> there is Daddy-O! Who are you? I'm Dr. Mary Von Roxbrocket, host of the Twisted Pulp Radio Hour, and now there's... Yeah? Twisted Pulp Magazine! <laughs> What's that, Doctor? Why, it is a return to greatness! Available on all your digital devices! That is what it is! Look! looks awesome! Exciting and, dare I say it, very unwholesome. You definitely have that right, my good man! <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Mary! My pleasure, Billy! And just between you and me, I am not sure that this man is really your father. Bye! Dad? Uh, just read your Twisted Pulp magazine, Billy. Twisted Pulp magazine! Available in dark alleyways behind meth labs everywhere. Or at Amazon.com or ArchaicMedia.info. That is A-R-C-H-A-I-C-M-E-D-I-A dot info. <laughs> the Return Home to Sigaya. A new zombie fiction, not published before. By T. Fox Dunham. Set in the Pacific Theater during World War II. Do any of them ever make it to the beach? Seldom. Sometimes bones wash up in the tide, white with the foam. If their corpses survive intact after collision, sharks will pick them off on the journey home to Sigaya, the city of beaches, of white sands now mutilated by iron crosses, spikes, and bamboo staffs. Young hero dropped machine gun belts to the Nippon soldiers, mostly old men and boys not over 16 like himself, too young yet to be inducted into the Imperial Army to fight in Manchuko to push off the barbarian invaders in Okinawa. 
the Americans pushed ever closer, violating the sacred homeland. When they landed on the home island, they would all be called to fight. His captain surveyed the surf with his lone eye, his right orb lost when the American gangsters burned Tokyo, all ash, his parents all ash. My brother was Tokotai. He did his duty for the emperor and his country, Captain Tsuko said. He studied the visage of the surf, watching for the water to break. We were told his plane struck at U.S. carrier the Bunker Hill. It did not sink. My parents were burned in Tokyo. All noble sacrifices for the emperor. He died a warrior. He died for nothing, Hero thought, then admonished himself again for the defeatist thinking. Why do they come back? he asked. The captain surveyed the wall of soldiers, checking the machine guns, handing out belts and clips. He held his katana at the ready, leading this ragtag group of misfits, the last of the best of Japan to live, fight, and die for his emperor, the living god. Perhaps one or two of the dead kamikaze pilots might make it to the beach, having survived the ravenous oceans with working limbs. However, the kamikaze had flown in full flock to attack the U.S. Navy at Okinawa, flying and dying in numbers greater than any previous assault. None could be allowed to transgress Japan's skin, violating her body with noisome, rotting flesh. And shame, the captain said, for not sinking their targets, and not serving the emperor, the shame of all soldiers for failing to repel the invaders. My brother did his duty, Hero snapped. Yes, and if he makes it home, he will come home insane, driven by demons. Now take your position. Wait until they cross the line of shells. Some don't always make it further. Let them wash away into the sea. The soldier silenced, surveying the sea. Hero focused on a conch shell, just at the breakwater as the foam licked the soft sand. Noise and breeze blew off the sea, gagging him first. He recognized the odor, the stench of the burned and rotted flesh, bodies buried beneath buildings in Tokyo, charred and putrefying. He dug for the day after the fires calmed, digging for the bodies of his parents. He'd found his mother's body, blackened and petrified, bent in a circle, and he buried her in the yard. Divine stench, Hero commented. Steady, said the captain. He watched his view, studying the ocean. The smooth waves simultaneously broke further out beyond the beach. The green waters ruptured, and at first, the smooth and shorn heads rose, wobbling unsteady. Hold! The captain held his blade in the air, suspending the first envelope. The sons of Japan, noble pilots who made the bravest sacrifice, climbed from the sea. Several of the bodies wore shredded uniforms, stained sepia and tangled in kelp. Some missed limbs, arms, and legs. White skull exposed through melted skin. Fish still trailed behind, devouring flesh tendrils torn away. Sharks swarmed the waters, still picking at the pilots. Not one blasphemous toe on the land! He swung his sword, ordering the attack. Bullets ripped to the air, slicing along the surface of the beach and assaulting the returned dead. Hero held his trigger. He couldn't fire. He just wanted to come home. Some of the other soldiers also couldn't fire. You! Hero! Now! I think one of them is... is it... Ryo? A starfish birthmark fanned out in his brother's neck since birth. He recognized some of the other pilots in Ryo's squadron. His brother had made it home. Fire your weapon, boy! The captain yelled. His brother appeared intact, still with all limbs. A chunk had been blown out of his shoulder and neck, but that was it. The sea atoliated his skin to white sand, and flaps broke off, 
but Ryo had come home to his brother. His captain ordered him to fire, aiming his blade. Hero released the machine gun, unburdened his soul, and got to his feet. He threw his cap into the sand. Return to your post, my brother. Shoot him, the order. Shoot him, the captain ordered. The other soldiers, the men and boys, the unfit, watched the scene of the returned, most stunned now by the vision, too overwhelmed to keep firing. They saw their comrades beyond death in the full glory of Bushido. Hero held the rage engraved on their torn faces, the accusations of betrayal portrayed in their remaining eyes. No wonder the Imperial General Headquarters ordered the return to be held at the sea. They didn't want their shame to be seen. He ran to his brother with impunity. No soldier dare shoot him. He waded into the surf. Seagulls dipped low, picking flesh morsels floating in the waves. He reached for his brother. Rio, you're safe now. His brother reached back, grabbing his shoulders, and embraced him. Then Rio's fingers dug into his bone, drilling into his back muscle, piercing until Hiro screeched where blood drenched his uniform. The return drove his teeth into the boy's neck and ripped away a piece of pink flesh, chewing into his neck and silencing his cries. Now, loyal soldiers of Japan, return them to the sea, keep firing, and one day we will join them, climbing back to the shore, and none alive will be left to stop us! Shadow Over Grainfield by E.S. Wynne When visiting the humble, sleepy little village where the sign on the one road in or out of town demurely states that you've entered Grainfield, California, you cannot at first imagine the kinds of horrors that stir in the shadows there on the long, flat streets at night. Your mind never lights on the unspeakable rituals that unfold in hidden groves and in the basements of churches, the things that lurch through cow pastures and fields or howl in sickly, gibbering cries in hidden rooms beneath aged, crumbling houses lost on roads that meander miles from the highway. Grainfield is nothing like you expect to see in California. It's a Midwest town, transplanted on the edge of the Central Valley, where the mountains rise up against the horizon in dark and rolling ridges. There are no movie stars here, no surfers, no beaches, and the only sunshine is a hot, oppressive wash of light that bleaches and burns through everything too long under its eye. It's not the sun that should worry you, though. Any more than it's the locals that greet you kindly on the street, offer you discounts and deals because a customer is a precious thing to them. No, it's the unspoken thing that connects them all, that keeps them all locked up in this rotting cow town, unable or unwilling to leave. It's the secret that makes them lock their doors at night, that keeps them all going to the same church every Sunday, the reason why their town has no hotel and all the businesses close up like clockwork when dusk begins to fall. It's the reason why the local hardware store stocks three different grades of heavy-duty nautical cable when the nearest lake is over forty miles away. The reason why the butcher packs a dozen unlabeled boxes in the back of his SUV before driving home at the end of the day. It's the shadow 
that hangs over Grainfield and taints everything that everyone does in some subtle way. The reason why the only person who doesn't sleep with the light on at night is the priest who lives in the basement of the church. It's the thing that drives him to wake up every morning, hours before anyone else, and sit down in the center of the tesseract, drawn in chalk on the floor of the basement, with a revolver in his lap. It's the last thing he thinks of before he closes his eyes and clears his mind, before he turns on the tape recorder and opens his mouth, to let the words of a dead god come through. Bobby's Fiend, read by Laura Nicole. Bobby saw the fiend peering out from behind the large magnolia tree. This happened on the playground at school. The fiend was tall, very thin, with large, black, bulging eyes and blood-red lips. The fiend was staring at Bobby, digging its long, black fingernails into the skin of the magnolia tree. Sap bled. The white, gooey liquid ran down the fiend's spotty hand. The night before, the fiend stood at the foot of Bobby's bed and watched him sleep. Bobby just covered his head and prayed the fiend wouldn't hurt him. It's safe to say Bobby didn't sleep much that night. Earlier in the day, while standing in line for lunch, the fiend tripped Monica Brandt. She fell hard on the lunchroom floor, breaking her nose. Everyone standing in that line had to go to the principal's office and explain what they saw. No one saw anything, except for Bobby. He saw the fiend trip Monica and laugh shrilly as Monica lay on the floor in a puddle of blood, wailing. But that's not what Bobby told the principal. He reiterated what the other children said. Later, at the drugstore, the fiend followed Bobby inside. Bobby made his way to the comic books for the latest issue of Detective Comics. He looked around the corner and saw the fiend take four Hershey's candy bars and place them in his left pocket of his dingy jeans. The fiend pointed at Bobby and laughed. Bobby went to the counter to pay for his comic book, when the owner, Mr. Rands, stopped him. He demanded Bobby empty his pockets in front of everyone in the drugstore. Bobby placed a comb, chewing gum, a note from Linda Thomas, saying she had a crush on him, and $10.52 on the counter. Then, out of his left back pocket, were four melted, unopened bars of Hershey's chocolate. Bobby hung his head as Mr. Rance took the newest issue of Detective Comics from him and escorted Bobby out of the store. Bobby ran all the way home in tears. He ran upstairs past his mother and slammed his bedroom door. He flung himself on his bed and bawled non-stop for an hour until he fell asleep. His mother knocked on Bobby's door. She asked if he was all right. He didn't answer. She shrugged and went into the bathroom. Looking into the mirror, Bobby's mother laughed shrilly. 
Her large, bulging black eyes danced with delight. Licking her blood-red lips, she dragged her long black fingernails across the bathroom mirror. This is Jackie Ayers, and you've been listening to Dead Airwaves on KKRN. Episode 4, Blimp Hunter by J. Noyes Shore. Read by Wesley Critchfield. Return Home to See Gaia by T. Fox Dunham. Read by T. Fox Dunham. Shadow Over Grainfield by E.S. Wen. Read by E.S. Wen. Bobby's Fiend by Mark Slade, read by Laura Nicole. Theme music by Tim Slade. <laughs>